right, we are live. Hey, welcome everybody and good day to you all and welcome to the Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream. I am your host, Jeff Freeman, and over here I have my special co-host, Alessandra Nadavari. Welcome, Alessandra. Hello, everybody. I'm happy to have the front piece of this podcast. <laughs> We're great, <laughs> glad to have you here. And today, folks, I am so honored and we are both so honored to have our special guest today, Christopher Morford and Corian Mole. And you guys, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. I tell you what, it's a, it certainly is an honor to have you both here. And and I know that uh, many of our uh, members that we have in the group and those that are watching over on the Twitch side today, um, they they may not know a, a whole lot about you. So I wanted to do just a brief introduction, if we could, of both of you, if you don't mind. I know that uh, some people don't like to talk about themselves, but we certainly like to hear a little bit of a background. Uh, and Christopher, we'll, we'll start with you, if you don't mind. Um, so you are a businessman, obviously, a business owner and a composer. And I guess you were also involved in a movie at some point at, at time, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, well, yeah, this was back in Chicago. Um, I, I was a musician uh, professionally. I went to Berklee College of Music out in Boston and then uh, Columbia College in Chicago, finished up there. And uh, I was a, a studio recording engineer for a while. Um, musician on the side and started uh, scoring or uh, writing themes for uh, you know, commercials and uh, movies and things like that. So wow. uh, I got to know just, uh, these were just local, uh, you know, they were very good uh, independent films, mm -hmm. but uh, I was I was happy to be invited to write the scores for them. So um, I, composed, wow. uh, I composed a few, and um, but I don't think... Uh, Many people have seen them, but uh, <laughs> proud of them nonetheless. And so now you spend a lot of your spare time doing research on fascinating uh, subjects in history. And uh, I know you're going to be sharing some of that with us here today. So thank you for being here again. Um, yes, absolutely. Thank you. And Corian, uh, you you uh, you are also involved in music and um, movies and all types of different things. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, yeah. Um, I, I've well, I have two hobbies gone out of hand. Uh, <laughs> one of them uh, uh, being music. Uh, always been making music. Uh, I'm I'm not a very good uh, guitarist, or even though you see loads of guitars and keyboards and stuff, but I am I'm really more of a songwriter than a singer. Uh, won uh, several awards uh, uh, in the U.S. Played in Nashville, in Atlanta. Wow. Uh, and in the the last couple of years, I've been uh, involved in uh, in the dance music scene uh, here in mm -hmm. the Netherlands uh, with quite some uh, success, uh, if I may uh, be so uh, uh, non modest, um, which is fun. Um, uh, and my other hobby gone mad uh, was uh, uh, history research. Um, so uh, always uh, um, had a great interest in uh, in history and mysteries. Started going to uh, Rennes Chateau. Uh, a long time ago, uh, sometimes together with my dad, and been researching that uh, ever since, and then uh, uh, through all sorts of mazes, uh, ended up on Oak Island. Absolutely, and that's you know that's it. I think you know, of course, we, our group is a uh, curse of Oak Island and beyond, mm -hmm. and uh, everybody just loves to get information that would tie back to that for sure. Um, and I know you're going to be sharing some of that with us today. Now, both of you were back. Uh, you were on Oak Island, and you were on the show back in season seven. Uh, a little bit more information came out uh, last year, but uh, in season seven, I think it was episodes eight and nine. Um, 
and you shared, and again, we know that you guys are out on that Island. You get to a tour of the Island, you get your, you're filmed for hours and hours and hours. And then you get about, you know, 15 minutes worth of airtime <laughs> to explain stuff. And, and I didn't know how much you in that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, but you know, many of our, our members, you know, they, I'm sure they've seen it. And, um, but I didn't know how much you wanted to talk about that. Cause I know you guys got a ton of new research that we're going to cover today, but if you don't mind just a little bit of a, a brief background on some of what you discussed then, if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. Whichever one of you. <laughs> yeah, this is where it gets awkward. Yes. Shall I, shall I take it off? Um, um, so uh, yeah, for me, it's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep this short, which is difficult for me, so bear with me. Um, so I was approached uh, just before uh, the airing. Uh, no, I don't, that's that's nonsense. I think in, uh, in June, what, which year is it? 2019, I think. Wow. Uh, by a research assistant uh, uh, who asked me a question, uh, you know, could I say something about uh, Pusan because uh, he kept coming up in uh, uh, in stuff uh, they were researching and uh, could I uh, um, uh, clarify that a little bit. At the time, I didn't know this was about uh, the show, The Curse of Oak Island. Oh, wow. Um, so I explained a little bit, yeah, Nicolas Poussin, who was a, a 17th century uh, classical, well, D. 17th century classical French painter mm -hmm. um, who figures prominently in the mystery of Renle Chateau. So I guess that's how they found my name because I run a, a website about that. And I had been in, uh, for example, in the Forbidden History uh, uh, television series. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I gave him some information and then uh, they invited me for a camera test on a Friday night. And I, I never forget, uh, you know, the, so the, the screen opened and there I was uh, in the war room of Oak Island <laughs> with all of the team, uh, which was really exciting. Uh, so did my uh, audition hmm. and uh, uh, the same night I got a ticket and on uh, Sunday uh, I landed on Oak Island. Well, I didn't land on the island. I, right, right, yeah. I landed in Halifax. <laughs> and uh, I think it's the day after. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thrown out of a plane over the island. And, uh, I landed uh, in the middle of, uh, of the swamp. for the cross. Yeah, yeah landed right for the cross. <laughs> yeah. But there, you know, I landed, on, I think, on a Sunday. And on uh, on the Monday, uh, I met uh, the marvelous Mr. Morford. Uh, so uh, it was quite nice. Uh, what, what we did there together uh, is because uh, Chris also brought a theory about Nicolas Poussin. Basically, uh, and you, 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 you have to imagine, you know, they asked me to develop a theory. So this is not something I thought up or, you know, and oh, wow. I, I actually had quite some trouble making the connection at first. I'd never really thought about it. Though. I never paid any real attention to Oak Island because it's, you know, literally, literally far away from Rennes and Chateau and yeah. literally far away from Europe uh, where uh, uh, Mr. Poussin had his dealings. But by examining his work and then discovering that on his most famous painting the shepherds of arcadia you have this inscription on the tomb which says at in arcadia ego and then arcadia being the original name of arcadia um, uh, named by uh, uh, giovanni di verrazzano in 1525 for francis i the french king um, you know there could be some connection now this painting uh, or, you know, an earlier version of it was dependent uh, or, or, or let's say the twin of another painting he did, which uh, uh, features uh, something you could explain as a gold river. Uh, and then if you would combine the two, you know, you could, if you would know 
some stuff, then this these two paintings could put you within five miles from Oak Island. That's literally what I said uh, in the war room. Um, and, and we started uh, to develop from there. And then uh, there was one thing that we already knew. That's not something that Chris or I discovered. Um, the painting Shepherds of Arcadia uh, was based on the geometrical shape of a pentagram. Mm -hmm. So there's the five pointed star, uh, which was uh, the template uh, for the painting, which was used to, um, you know, to direct the figures uh, and and to uh, to make the scene, um, and uh, then I had this idea, you know, Nolan's cross consisting of five boulders. You only need four boulders to make right. a cross, right? One, two, three, four. So what's that fifth boulder doing there? Mm -hmm. And on my crappy internet uh, uh, screen print of Nolan's cross, uh, I could perfectly fit a pentagram, and that's how I came to. Uh, Oak Island. And then, of course, uh, when Steve Guptill uh, mingled in, you know, we micro positioned everything uh, um, and uh, uh, found a spot uh, in the swamp uh, where we found this huge stone, which is now called the uh, the Arcadia Stone. Still regret we didn't call that the Mole Stone or the Morford Stone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yep. Christopher Stone. Um, <laughs> And uh, and there you go, and that's I think that's where we left off uh, at the end of season seven. Did, did I forget anything, Chris? Uh, no, that's about it. Um, if you wanted to, should we just do a brief overview of the the alignments and things like that, sure. just to get people up to speed, you know? Mm -hmm. So that, that we we kind of took it from that point on, and we continued our research. We became very good friends. Um, I'm glad they brought us together there on the islands. Mm -hmm. you know, we had two different theories, but they overlapped on so many points that uh, they said, you know, you guys should really work together. And uh, I'm glad we did. It worked out great. And we, we came up with things that uh, we wouldn't have otherwise on our own, I think. so. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So, um, and from there, we, we ended up at Versailles, you know, and uh, finding that alignment uh, like an arrow from Versailles straight to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem mm. and uh, putting the clues together further uh, it seems uh, without a doubt that the intended target on the other end was Oak Island so um, even if the, the degrees were not uh, pinpoint accuracy and you got to remember that uh, from Versailles to Jerusalem uh, the Holy Land was well known well mapped out um, i think that alignment was quite easy to do at that mm. time but over a body of water like uh, the ocean right. to oak island the other direction that uh, was a bit more difficult and uh, but when you start putting all the clues that we gathered together um, amassing all that um, it was beyond a doubt that that was the intent uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt for us yeah, and that's really that's really something that's very significant. Now, and and we noticed that that line when you took the line all the way from from the Temple Mount all the way across to the um, France and then all the way to Oak Island. It yeah, sure, it did miss uh, Versailles by just a few miles, you know, fifty miles or something. But still, I mean, you have to. That's not a coincidence that it went through there at all. I mean, that just that that alignment. I mean, even with the tools that they had at the time. Um, that's, that's significant. That's really significant. And, and I know that we all looked at that going, wait a minute, really? Is that, is that true? Did that really, did that line really extend that way? 
Um, and, and I guess it leaves us wondering, what was the big connection between, well, Jerusalem and France or Versailles at that time? Um, and then the development of the menorah on the ground there. I mean, I know you guys will probably get to this and you're, you know, it's just a question that popped into my head was that, you know, where was the connection between the, the Temple Mount and France and the building of the Palace of Versailles at that time? Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, where, where, where did that all come about? It does seem very odd at first. Yeah, it does. The French king uh, lay out a giant menorah in his backyard. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, like said, go ahead. What we dug, um, it started to make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, just for one example, uh, as the princes are coming up, the Dauphin, as they call them, mm-hmm. if you're the uh, king to be, uh, you would be handed a book called The Mirror of Princes. Mm. And uh, that is a workbook. Uh, it's a guide for a new prince on how to be a good king. And they will give examples in there. And in the in the French instances, it was always the biblical kings, and specifically David and Solomon. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to combine being a very uh, wise ruler and a good ruler, uh, you would go with, with Solomon, the wisest king of all. And so uh, Louis and, and the other kings before him would would definitely have been instructed with these books on how to be like Solomon. And uh, having your domain pointing right at Solomon's temple mm-hmm. uh, said a lot. Kind of, he's really trying to be like King Solomon. Mm-hmm. And um, it went on for there. That's just one example. But I'm sure we'll bring up a few more here. No. Yeah, so so it 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 was absolutely amazing to um to see what they did. So the the and the, the first question that comes up in your head is like, could they do this? And then, mm-hmm. you know, recently uh we find more and more um writings by, you know, uh architects, uh, mathematicians, uh, scientists, uh, you know, astronomers who created works as early as uh, half the 16th century. Uh, that detail exactly how you had to make these alignments. And we, we know um, from, from the memoirs of people on the court that, that you know, Louis XIV was highly interested in these things. And if, if, for example, if you uh, read the memoirs of Madame de Montespan, who was one of his mistresses, uh, you can read that, for example, uh, the position of the new Royal Observatory in Paris um, had to be... Um, uh, in a in a very precise spot to be aligned precisely with the palace of Luxembourg, uh, and they even and in the end when they um, uh, pinpointed the location, they bought a pentagonal piece of land to found the the observatory on. Wow. Um, as Chris said, you know the alignment of the central axis of Versailles uh, to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And you can all only call that, you know, eerie precision. It's mm. perfect. Yep. Uh, the alignment that we presented uh, from Versailles uh, to Oak Island uh, on season eight had a deviation of something like under a degree. Uh, by now, uh, we know the exact place uh, they were pointing at. It's just as precise as uh, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, we can't share it yet. Um, but but the places there it makes perfect sense i can't believe that how we missed it uh, in season eight 
but it's uh, uh, again, it's a, it's a mind blowing story. Um, and um, uh, uh, your other question, uh, Jeff, and how how does how does this all uh, tie together? So how do you tie Jerusalem to uh, uh, to Versailles, uh, to Oak Island, uh, you know, part of the answer there is, uh, is the Royal House of France, which is very old. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and, you know, and like you were saying, you, you made the comment about the fact that that line, you know, um, uh, points to something else, but that's part of the research. I mean, you know, when you're researching something like this and, and I know, believe me, I've not done any, uh, as much research on any of the stuff that like you guys have. And even Alessandra, she's done a ton of research on many things as well. So, but that's part of the research is that as you go, you're discovering more and more and more. And then you take those clues and those answers that you're getting and you compile them together to come up with the actual theory of what happened and you're proving it based upon the research you've done so it, it's yeah. nothing to say oh you know look what we uh, why didn't we discover it then but then that's part of what research is about you're you're expanding that continual research going on and you guys are going to come up with discoveries you're going to share i know you're going to share some things what you can share with us today but as you go on in the future there's going to be more stuff that we're going to have you back and talk about later mm-hmm. on because i know you're going to find new things to talk about I'm intrigued by the usage of pentagram by the Royal House of France and the mistresses of the kings, for example. Why would they pick pentagram as a shape? What does it do in practical terms? Does it create some kind of energy within the area of the pentagram? I doubt that it's just symbolic, so it must do something on the ground. So what does it do? Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, one thing it does, and going back to the Temple of Solomon, uh, there is a tradition that Solomon, when he was building his temple, uh, he employed the use of spirits, um, goetic spirits, so to speak, uh, a type of magic used by John Dee and others. And for that, he had a, a ring given to him by uh, Archangel Michael, I believe. Uh, which had an insignia on it. Uh, a lot of people do believe that that was the hexagram, the six-pointed star of David on the ring. But if you read the Testament of Solomon book, it clearly says that it was a pentaleph. So he used the pentagram to control uh, these spirits to build the t- temple. Um, and he could use that to subdue them and get them to do his will and trap them as well. And so it is a, a talisman in that way, uh, just to bring it back to the, the Temple of Solomon. It has many other attributes as well, but I think that's an important one in the story. So one of the spirits or entities that Solomon employed was, was called Asmodeus, right? Yes. And the statue of Asmodeus is in the church in Rand Le Chateau. It is. Yeah, he's guarding the entrance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. True. And yeah. He was uh, subdued by uh, water as well, and you can see he's under the water fount in there. Ah. You know, that's sort of keeping him in place, keeping him in check. He would come down from, I don't know, the sky or heaven <laughs> to drink from a well that was on earth, right? Uh-huh. And that's where Solomon trapped him was when Asmodeus came down for a drink. I do so believe you're right. 
there was a well. And one thing that Asmodeus had was special tools. For example, there was one tool called Shamir. It was um, also known as the hissing serpent. Apparently, according to the Jewish law at the time, Solomon was not allowed to use iron or metal tools to right. cut stone for his temple. So he had to come up with an alternate way to build the temple. So he went to Asmodeus, who then gave him the use of this um, weird tool called Shamir, <laughs> kind of like a sonic drill, I think, <laughs> to, to shape the stone and, and to erect the temple. Yes. Fascinating wow. story. You did your research well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why she's here. <laughs> yeah. stuff up, let me tell you. <laughs> the way the, the way we've seen it on the ground, uh, the pentagram is a shape that protects what's inside. Okay. I believe it's also related to Venus. Mm -hmm. That is one. Yes. Of, uh, yeah. Yes, yep. because yep. Venus draws um, a pentagram over Earth. As it as yeah. it travels and in the, the sky, and it takes right, and it takes eight years for Venus to complete its cycle, and to 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 draw the Venus pentagram. So Venus draws this rose over Earth all the time. So we live under the rose. Yeah, that's really interesting too, because I had not, I did, you know, being somebody that loves to look up yes, at the stars, Rosa, right? Yeah, exactly, and that's 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 interesting. So the actual orbit of of Venus makes a pentagram mm -hmm. orbit or of the Earth or with the Earth involved. Yeah. It, does. it does. That's amazing. It does, and it takes yeah. eight, eight years, like eight years and a little bit to, to draw the pentagram. And when you look it up online, um, the audience can probably do it right now, Venus pentagram, um, mm -hmm. the, the cycle that it draws the pentagram, but it takes eight years to do it. And it literally looks like a rose. Yeah, so yeah. and also Venus five. is one of the only uh, planets who travels west in the sky. Really? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I Almost didn't know all that. The others travel, travel east. Mm -hmm. So um, if you look at, for example, Shepherds of Arcadia, you see mm -hmm. Venus standing on the right in the east. In some depictions, uh, when they're reversed, they make her travel to the west. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's something interesting too about that picture. The the uh, shepherds of Arcadia is the uh, the fact that uh, um, you know she's standing there, but the colors that are used for their clothing is kind of interesting. With you know the Mars being the red, and then she's I believe wearing the yellow. Um, I, I had a picture of it. I could bring it out, but I, I um, that was interesting too. So there's a lot of references in that painting that mean you know that 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 are that are standing out. A lot of different uh, clues in there. I guess you could say um that are just phenomenal there's also where the the shadow of the arm um you know when he's pointing to something on the on the actual stone there or to a you know and you see the shadow and the shadow is like it doesn't look like an arm at all it's a, it looks like a sickle mm -hmm. you it know and, and it's like that's not an artist's mistake you know he didn't make that mistake he's a he's a, nope. you know <laughs> so that means something and that's that's all those little clues are things you guys picked out which is absolutely fascinating um that, and i did that, not know that oh yeah. man that painting is is incredible if you count the number of arms there's seven arms on the mm -hmm. painting there's uh, mm -hmm. uh so there should be eight arms but there are seven seven arms like a menorah um so th th there's a lot of uh 
a lot of connections there. Yeah. Did so, Poussin did Poussin come up with this on his own, or was he given detailed instructions by somebody else to make the painting the way he did and to include all the elements that are in it? Nobody knows. <laughs> the phrase was not his, but uh... the phrase was not his. Uh, but um, we believe the execution and the, the setup was uh, was his. Yeah, that's interesting. That's so really interesting. Stuff that, yeah, and even the words, I it's the uh, in, it's what, what was the words that were actually painted? But I know you are not, you know, that were marked on that stone, and then you kind of moved them around mm -hmm. the letters around to to uh, indicate some other stuff. But everything's a clue. Um, mm -hmm. So it was like a in route to Arcadia. Is that what it was, or something like that? It's, um, at in Arcadia, ego could be itego uh, arcana dei. Mm -hmm. Be gone! I conceal the secrets of God. Jit uh, uh, neo Arcadia, go on a trip to New Arcadia. Mm -hmm. and there's uh, uh, Ariadne, Goetica is another. Mm -hmm. That's one of Chris's, which I dearly, dearly love. Um, and they could all be true, and they, somehow they all tie in uh, to the same storyline. Mm -hmm. I was really fascinated when you had taken the pentagram and you laid it over top of Nolan's cross. And like you had mentioned earlier, you know, you need only four stones to make a cross, but there's that fifth one. Um, and why did they use, why did they have a fifth one? There's no, you know, no answer except for the theory you came up with, with laying that pentagram over it. And then when you, when you take the five, uh, five corners of the pentagram and they point to a center marker and that center marker is, I think there was one that I was watching. It's the eye of the swamp. And you know, we and that's something that you know. I the the members hear me talk about this whenever we were talking Oak Island stuff. Is that I want that I want that eye dug up. I mean, that eye, that swamp has got to be something more to it than what they. You know, Ian Spooner went out there and he was messing around. Oh yeah, it's a it's a it's a mine for blue clay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's possible, I suppose. But dig it up. Let's find out. Let's dig it up. <laughs> so, Keep going. Yeah. yeah. Ian is Ian is a fantastic guy. He was on yeah. the island when I was there. Uh, was that it? was the time that he had just started in season seven. Um, so he was quite new to the uh, to the mystery, like I was. So uh, uh, I had lunch with him, uh, uh, I think, on the first or the second day that I was there. And I remember that he told me, uh, you know, we, we have find, we're finding this stuff here and these datings. Uh, and that I have no idea how I can tell my colleagues on the university <laughs> because they will think, you know, I, uh, I made it up. But he yeah. didn't, you know, this is real research, it's real scientific uh, stuff. Uh, and he was absolutely amazed by uh, by what he found. Yeah. yeah well, he, sure. he dated some of the swamp to the 1200s and then again to the 1600s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So does that fit your theory? You know, um, some people do or don't believe um, you know, that the Templars were involved here. Uh, mm -hmm. What we do know is that at least, you know, there's a link to the Templars, uh, to the stuff that Chris and I are, uh, are investigating. Um, and and there, there's, there, what we try to do is we go back to the original source and, you know, just read what it says. And then uh, we, uh, we add it all up, we put it on a timeline. And then if you read the timeline, uh, um, uh, you know, from, uh, uh, from left to right, uh, history will reveal uh, uh, what happened and uh, it's it's remarkable uh, 
what you find, one of the things we found is that there, there was an inner sect inside the temple. And this is all, you know, uh, you can deduct this very easily from public sources. So you know, the, the, the Knights Templar were arrested in, uh, what is it, on uh, in 1307. 1307. Yeah, 14th of October, 1307. Um, and then uh, in the years after that, the Templar trials uh, started and you can learn a lot from uh, from the testimony. So if you go back to the original Latin text, uh, then of course uh, the the first thing you you find is uh, June 1308 when uh, Jean de Chalon in France in Poitiers testifies um, that that he uh, that he's seen uh, uh, the master of the order Gerard de Villiers who fled with 50 horses uh to a place where they have uh, uh, 18 galleys uh, waiting uh which supposedly is uh, la rochelle um but then uh, in july so one month later um the, the, uh, another name Hugh de chalon uh, emerges in a very interesting document uh, which is kept uh, uh, in the uh, um, in the vatican um, which says, I, I'll spare you the Latin, but it, I, it says that um, the brother Hugues de Chalon, the nephew of the visitor and brother of Gérard de Montclair, warriors of the order of the sect of the temple, sect of the temple, together with some more accomplices, formed the same sect uh, and they planned to kill the king. So this is in an official testimony uh, in the Vatican. And then later, uh, two years later, uh, Raoul de Prel, who was a, a, a legal counsel, uh, who was a witness to the prosecution in the trial of the Templars in Sens, just just uh, under Paris, testifies that you know when he lived in uh, in Laon, a, a place in uh, in France, he was friends with G uh, Gervais de Beauvais, um, who had claimed over one hundred times that there was a section in the order so secret that he would rather have cut his head off than to tell anyone. And there was also a point in the general chapter of the order that was so secret that if Raoul de Prel, so this legal counsel, or even the King of France would see it, those holding the chapter would seek to kill him, um, deferring the authority of no one in this. And furthermore, Gervais had set the order at a small book of statutes, um, which he would show you know, to Prel willingly, but there existed another secret book which he would not show to anyone for the world. So um uh, so so you learn two things there was an inner sect inside the temple that had a secret which was so powerful uh, that anyone you know uh, uh, who came to know of it would have to be killed even if it was the king um and then uh, 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 you know maybe even this is the motive uh, why philip the fourth started prosecuting uh, the templars uh, because maybe he had become privy uh, to a secret and uh, 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 they were after his uh, his life. Uh, who knows? Uh, but just, you know, as an example of the things uh, uh, you learn uh, from these records. And then the connection to uh, perhaps uh, North America. Uh, it's, it's not crystal clear, but um, if you look at the, the trial records of the Inquisition in Hollywood in Scotland, and this is November 1309, um, you had um, two Templars there, Walter of Clifton and William of Middleton, who testified to the Inquisition. Um, and, and they say literally, you know, upon receipt of the papal bull condemning the order. And you have to imagine 
that uh, uh, the arrest order reached Scotland a little bit later uh, than the rest of Europe because it was further away. So, you know, it took some more time. So he says, you know, the, the, the minute we learned of this bull, many of the knights cast off their habits and fled at once. And then they, they say in, uh, in Latin, ultra mare, across the sea. They fled at once across the sea. Now you have to imagine they were in Scotland. So where would they go across the sea? They, they couldn't go back to the mainland because uh, they were they would have been arrested uh, 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 or even uh, killed uh, there. Um, so then, if you know that the the seafaring route from Scotland to North America, you know, had been known for you know at least three hundred years uh, by then, and it was you know almost routinely sailed uh, from the Orkneys uh, uh, to go uh, fish for cod. Uh, or to uh, go search for timber or, uh, uh, or you know, and maybe uh, uh, other resources, then I don't think it's so far-fetched. If, you're, if, if you fear for your life um, and there's, no one, you know, there's nowhere else to go, you know, and it's not so far-fetched you know, to put your family uh, on a boat and uh, sail you know, to Iceland, to Greenland, uh, to North America. You, know, you can ask any refugee from Syria if you fear for your life, you will do whatever it takes mm -hmm. uh, to reach safety. Right. That's and, right. you know, once, suppose, suppose this really happened. Uh, once you landed in, let's say, Nova Scotia, your first priority would not be to record your presence there for future generations. So Jeff Freeman and Corey and Moore can have a discussion about it on the Internet. <laughs> now you you would fear for your safety. Make sure you know, you know sh uh, shoot some deer, uh, get some food for your family, build a hut, and uh, uh, and try to make peace with uh, you know with the uh, with the First Nation people that you uh, uh, that you meet. Uh, so, are there no records? No, of course there aren't any records. Uh, are we sure this happened? No, of course we aren't. You, you know, no, we weren't there. Right. Uh, but but is it uh, unthinkable? Um, uh, because it's not accepted history. Uh, this is, in my mind, and, and reading the uh, the trial uh, record from the Inquisition, it's the it's a very logical thing. Yep, it makes total sense. And I know Alessandra and I talked about the world. that too. Yeah, we, her and I talked about that. Even connecting that to um, the Vikings and the Norse, you know, would have had you know moved some. Of, yeah, I'll let her elaborate on that. But uh, <laughs> I was know, just thinking. Some breath, and I was like, oh, getting ready to speak. <laughs> <laughs> All this research is going to come pouring out. I want to say something that um, I think the audience might not be aware of, but it's an interesting piece to the puzzle, I think. So, you mentioned um, the Norse connection and how the Templars would have used Norse ships, perhaps, or at least yeah. crews to get to North America. Now, this didn't happen in the 1300s. It happened in the 1200s, but it's on record. So in Iceland, there was a man who was um, a wealthy merchant, a politician, and he was also um, a poet. His name was Snorri Sturluson. And Snorri. He, yeah, Snorri. And he... Good <laughs> <laughs> <Sweet>. um, <laughs> He... Uh, My wife he wrote, wrote Snorri. Yeah. He, he wrote... <laughs> Come on, it's S N O R R I. <laughs> Let's not offend. The I'll, I'll shut up now. I'll shut up now. <laughs> All right. So Snorri Sturluson was trying to, I think, get elected into the parliament in Iceland, and um, he had a rival, a political rival, and he decided to uh, show up during the election with a 
um, some force with a show of strength. And he hired 80 knights who came armed and in uniform. And they were from elsewhere. They were from overseas. So they were not okay. local. They were not from Iceland. There were 80 of them. And they apparently dressed in, in the same uniform. They were armed and they came to support him in the election. Um, nobody seems to know the identity of these 80 knights, where they were from. I think that some people tried to kind of track them down, but the description in the Icelandic records is very vague. And what's strange about it is that um, I think Snorri was seeking a political alliance with the Kingdom of Norway. And I guess the Norwegian king might have sent him some, you know, some men <laughs> to okay. help sway the election in the right way. <laughs> but, um, oh, I, <laughs> but, but I was told by a Norwegian friend that even the king of Norway at the time did not have his own standing army and that pretty much no European monarch did. Now we have the military, right? That, you know, that, that's part of every country and the taxpayers fund that. But back then, if you were a king and you wanted to go to war, you had to tell your nobleman, you know, bring me so many men for this battle. And sometimes the nobleman didn't show up and, you know, the battle <laughs> didn't go very well. But there was no standing army. Oops, so the Norwegian, <laughs> the Norwegian king could not send Snorri 80 of his own soldiers because he didn't have them. So who were they? And it would have been expensive for anybody to, to have 80 warriors on payroll, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so some people think that they were from a, um, you know, from a religious military order like the Knights Templar or the Knights Hospitaller, maybe even yeah. um, Teutonic Knights or someone like that. But the question is, what were they doing in Iceland and why were they willing to help Snorri? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't cheap to travel, to, you know, to launch an expedition. So what were they doing? Who were they? What were they doing in Iceland? And then where did they go from there once the election was yeah. over? Yeah. Did they return back to Europe or did they sail west? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. Court, Court Lindahl put up that quite or that little statement there about Snorri and the uh, uh, Vern's uh, journey to the center of the earth. That was interesting. I did not know that. So he that was his uh, little statement there. Thank okay. you, Court. Fantastic. Hey, Court. Yeah. Cheers, man. <laughs> Um, we did have one question that we kind of uh, jumped by there real quick, and I wanted to go back to it. It was from Deidre. You guys know Deidre White. Um, oh, yeah. Hey, uh, she, she's watching. She's out there today. Welcome, Deidre. Mm -hmm. uh, she wanted to know, she said that uh, Christopher <laughs> had mentioned a book. She said she oh. wants to know what the name of the book was that you mentioned, uh, the one that the Prince of France uh, would be given to learn about being a king. What was the name of that book? Remember? They were known as the Mirrors of Princes. Mirror of Princes. Interesting. Okay. There were several of them. Uh, They're all a bit different, but they mm -hmm. all use the biblical kings as a reference. Yes. Specifically David and, and Solomon. Okay. Yep. I know James McQuiston is also out there watching, and he uh, he uh, he wants he wants to give a call in. So we'll we'll set that up here in just a minute. We'll get that. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Deidre said thank you. Um, uh, for that, so uh, you know, if we as, as we go along here, we'll uh, we'll see about that. I know you guys want to get to some of the new research, and it, you kind of touched on it already a little bit. Um, and and may, may I 
one question before we go into the new research? Yes, sure. Absolutely. Okay, sorry, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> okay it, it's quick. So um, I know that Poussin's painting, Shepherds of Arcadia, is modeled after a very specific, um, should I say, two more sarcophagus that used to exist in Rennes-le-Chateau or outside of Rennes-le-Chateau. It was the stone sarcophagus that was just out in the country. It doesn't exist anymore. I think the the farmer or the landowner of, of the owner of that land um, was having trouble with too many tourists, so I think he just blew it up. Mm -hmm. So, so that tomb or sarcophagus that's in the painting is no longer like it no longer exists in real life. But apparently, the painting sets a scene that actually exists outside of Rennes-le-Chateau with some of the mountains or peaks um, that are identifiable by shape and name. And it occurred to me that um, on Oak Island, we have a link to Rennes-le-Chateau in the form of that lead cross that was found by Rick Lagina and Gary Drayton. Um, we don't know uh, when that cross was dropped there on the beach, how it got there, but we know that the lead came from a mine outside of Rennes-le-Chateau. So we have a lead cross mm -hmm. made from metal that was mined outside of Rennes-le-Chateau. And then we have Poussin's painting, which seems to show a scene from Le Chateau. Mm -hmm. And it also seems to fit over the swamp on Oak Island. Mm -hmm. well, you the, lead, the, the lead came from a mine that is 165 kilometers from Rennes-le-Chateau. Okay. So well, that's, that, that's, that's quite a distance. Um, mm. that, that tomb is a bit of an enigma. Um, for sure it wasn't there uh, when Poussin lived. It's even debatable if he was ever in the south of France. Uh, he could have crossed the area when he traveled to, uh, to Rome, but it wouldn't really have been on the way. Um, so the actual tomb uh, we're discussing here uh, uh, on top of my head was built in 1933. Uh, so by Louis Bertrand. Based on the painting? Perhaps. Perhaps. It's not that's mm -hmm. not known. Um, it, it, it is it is a, an unusual story. Uh, uh, the guy, uh, I think, uh, put uh, the embalmed body of his uh, grandmother in it. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. indeed, uh, some people say, I mean, I mean, if you would have been at the spot, uh, it's in uh, Le Pontil, uh, close to uh, Rennes-le-Chateau, Rennes-le-Bain, and a place called Arc uh, in uh, the south of France. If you stand at, uh, I, I, you know, I, I stood there many times. Uh, if you look at the backdrop, it is a bit reminiscent of uh, what Poussin put in his painting. I mean, that's, uh, that's clear. Uh, if that was intentional, uh, no idea. If you look at, you know, Poussin was, renowned for his landscapes mm -hmm. uh, and he you know he uses the different uh, or, or the similar sorts uh, of peaks and shapes uh, in his paintings but uh, you know many of them uh, 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 look to be uh, fantasy um, so it's a bit of an enigma uh, uh, why this gentleman uh, built this tomb uh, you know in this shape and it, it is uh, very much like the tomb in uh, shepherds of arcadia um, okay. Okay. So, so you don't think that uh, that that tomb that existed outside Rennes Chateau had anything to do with Poussin's painting, and you also don't think not, that no, the facts the facts would not okay. support that. All right. Well, that's good to know. 
And you also don't think that the, the lead cross from Oak Island has anything to do with Rainwashing Toe? No, I don't. Okay. The, well, one of the links that um, uh, that there are uh, uh, between Oak Island uh, and Rennes Chateau is one that is, is very is very remote, and uh, uh, you and I discussed this uh, when we set up this call, uh, Alessandra, uh, uh, based on uh, the tartan uh, you're wearing. <laughs> uh, one of the stations of the cross in Rennes Chateau has a little boy which allegedly is wearing a tartan. Uh, with colors similar to yours, uh, which are the colors of the Gunn family of Scotland. Uh, and James Gunn allegedly uh, joined uh, uh, Sinclair in, what is it, 1397, uh, when allegedly he uh, traveled to North America. Well, why would, that, why, would that, um, <laughs> why would the painting in Renlos Chateau show a boy wearing a gun curtain? The tartan, the 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 tartan of Clang gun. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on! <laughs> oh, I, I really have no idea. I, uh, it's uh, for me. It's one of those little factoids uh, that you find uh, while researching. Uh, maybe maybe we should maybe we should investigate a little bit more. But I you know I I sort of try to stay away from uh, uh, the the Sinclair legend. And uh, I, I I don't. I don't need the Sinclair legend uh, to make it plausible for me that people traveled from Scotland to North America, as I just explained. I think that was the, yeah. it made a lot of sense. So whether or not it was Henry Sinclair or someone else, uh, uh, I'm sure there were uh, Europeans, uh, uh, Scottish people uh, in North America uh, uh, way before uh, uh, people think they, they were there today. And whether or not it was Mrs. Sinclair, you know, it, could have, it could have been him or anyone else. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, and I'm one of the people that believe in that as well. There's just too much evidence to say that, um, or in, in at least in my mind, that, that to say it otherwise, um, there's just too many little connections that could be made with that that uh, that lead that to believe. You know, and and Alessandra and I have talked about that, and there's been other people. You know, we've even talked with uh, Team Templar North America that have talked about some of that same information yeah. um, with Sean mm -hmm. Williamson. Uh, you know, working with the Sinclair family. Um, yeah. I mean, there's. There's a, lot, there's a lot of stuff, you know, that leads to... Sean Williamson is, is descended from Clang Gun. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. <laughs> fantastic, yeah. yeah. Uh, another time, he's going to be on the show coming up again here pretty soon, too. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, and, and that's why I was telling you guys earlier, you know, when we were having our pre-show meeting, I was talking about how, you know, a lot of this information, you know, I had no idea that it was going on. You know, I, I really hadn't looked into the background of the, the, the uh, uh, knowing that the, the Vikings had made their way up across, you know, to uh, Iceland and all that, um, but not really worried about too much about what happened with the, the Templar. Uh, and now that's all I want to do is I want to get more and more and more information on all this stuff and, uh, and the connection to North America that they, they've had. And, and again, you know, that puts you right into, uh, you know, Oak Island. Um, and again, like you said earlier, Corian, you know, can we say definitively that this happened? No, we cannot. There's been no absolute proof of it yet. Um, mm -hmm. that will come, but man, the, 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 mm -hmm. the clues just add up. I, it's just, a. I don't know. I, I'm a believer in that for sure. And I, you know, like you said, there's a lot of people that don't, there's a lot of people that no, nah, they've never been over here. Why would they have come over here? But they had to escape, you know? And then when they got here, you know, and, and again, going with my thinking that they came here, 
Um, they're not going to say, okay, here we are. We're, we're the, uh, the Templar and the Knights Templar and we're in North America now. Are they going to hide and are you going to keep their, you know, maybe change who they are and kind of disguise us a little bit. They're not going to make an announcement. They're not going to be documents showing what they've done because they don't want their hiding. So yeah, they're going to change, you know, their name. They're going to change who they are. They're going to, you know, and they're going to have to work with the indigenous people of the area and make friends and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's just, there's just too much that, uh, that goes down that road. That leads us there for sure. Okay. I know we've, uh, James, uh, James McQuiston, I don't know if he's still out there. He did want to call in. I have, we've have sent the number over to him. I didn't know what question he had, but he, uh, so he can give a call when he, when he feels, uh, up to it. Um, and hopefully that uh, won't be in the middle of when you're trying to explain something else. I know we passed by his question. We, it, you know, everything's gone by like 10 or 15, 20 minutes ago. Um, so hopefully it'll still be relevant, but, um, go, go ahead. You guys, I know you want to get onto some research that you've talked about in the, some of the new stuff you're working on and um, you've kind of teased us a little bit with that. And I know that there's, there's a lot of that you cannot discuss. Um, so I'm going to kind of hold back from asking too many questions on this because I don't want to delve into an area where you cannot talk about it and just let you guys go. If you want to just talk about some of this new stuff coming up with uh, Louis, uh, the sun King, why was he called the mm -hmm. sun King? Because he identified with the sun with Apollo. Apollo. Yeah. 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 Okay. He was sort of a miracle child. Uh, his parents had been trying to have children for some two decades. Yeah, a lot of miscarriages. Yeah. And uh, suddenly he appeared like the sun. And uh, anyway, he, he was actually in a theatrical production where he played as a child where he was uh, Apollo, the Sun King. Uh, oh wow. There's a painting of him somewhere dressed up all golden and, and shiny. So maybe there's the, the, maybe there's two areas that we that we can touch on. Uh, one uh, is this uh, huge menorah uh, in the mm -hmm. gardens of the Chateau of Versailles uh, in France, uh, and how we think um, you know they they, they came to this uh, shape. Uh, mm -hmm. And another one, uh, which is interesting, maybe for later, is uh, the connection between the Royal House of France and uh, and the Knights Templar. But maybe uh, start with this uh, menorah, Chris. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people uh, when we first came out, when we first showed the menorah um, at Versailles, there were a lot of questions. It's well, it doesn't look like a menorah. It's not the uh, nine-branched uh, Hanukkah menorah that everyone's familiar with. Mm -hmm. This is a, a seven-branched, straight-armed uh, menorah, and we thought that held some deep significance here. Um, certainly, both versions existed, um, but we did a little investigating, and maybe we could go back and do a quick uh, history on this and see the connections that are made between that style menorah and why it's important to this story. I'll try and bring up some pictures here. All right. Yeah, because we're all used to the the traditional menorah that has the curved, you know, curved lines going up to make the, uh, yeah. you know, the the seven, you know, the seven branches of it, and uh, you know, and that's when I when I first looked, and I have to admit, guys, that when I very first when you first brought this up, uh, and I looked at it, um, you know, in the like in the Google Maps. Um, it did not, I'm thinking that doesn't look like a menorah and I'm looking at the, you know, Google earth and I'm looking down on the, on the, um, the, um, the Versailles and, and I'm thinking this is not, um, 
it doesn't look like a menorah to me at all. And it really clicked into place when I saw the picture on uh, when uh, Rick, I think it was Rick and uh, some of the team went over to France and they were actually in the prison. And then they saw the drawing of a menorah on the wall. Mm -hmm. That's when it hit me. And I went, okay, now they line up. Now the two are, they, yeah, okay, I see it now. Mm -hmm. And that's the straight arm one that you're talking about. Is that right? Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I had that picture. Can you share, Chris, or do you want me to share? Does it work? Uh, yeah, are you seeing that picture? No. Uh, no, we're just getting uh, nothing there, unfortunately. No. That, what are you putting up? The, the straight arm, the Maimonides uh, thing? This is just a picture of Maimonides. Um, okay. See. Let me see if I can bring that up. If you uh, tell me what picture you want, I'll uh, bring them up. Oh, oh, there he is. I lost him for a second. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, let's see. There you go. Can you see him, Chris? Okay, yeah, I see that. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's uh, Rabbi Mark Monides. Um he was born about 1138 in the Iberian Peninsula, so that is what is now uh, Spain. Uh, he was a Sephardic Jewish philosopher. He was one of the most uh, revered rabbis in all of history, and he in influenced uh, many great minds. Uh, there is a notebook that exists of Isaac Newton, and it's full of his thoughts on this man's philosophies. I don't know if you have that picture for him. I do. The, the notebook. There we go. Thank you. So Maimonides, he, he's known for many things, and uh, he's known also, uh, not widely known for his Kabbalah and thoughts on Kabbalah. That's the uh, notebook of Sir Isaac Newton and his writings on Maimonides. He was a great influence on so many great minds, you know, even today, studying his philosophy. So, But he, he states in no uncertain terms that he has concealed in his works the very deepest meanings of the Torah. Uh, it's not meant for everyone, uh, just a select few who can read between the lines. And it's, it's his interpretation of the Torah that really interests us in this mystery here. So uh, we mentioned on the show, we believe there's this enormous seven branch straight arm menorah, and it's laid out in the gardens of, of Versailles. Mm -hmm. Those gardens point directly to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where Maimonides he spent some time after leaving what is now Spain. Uh, this version of the menorah looks very strange to most people. Uh, the nine-branch menorah appears a bit later in history, and the seven-branch menorah is the original version created by Moses um, at, on the orders of God himself for the tabernacle, and it's later displayed in the Temple of Jerusalem in Solomon's Temple. The Bible is very precise regarding some aspects of the menorah and how God told more, Moses to fashion it, but it doesn't say whether or not the menorah should have curved arms or straight arms. Well, this is something for which Maimonides was known for because he believed very strongly that the menorah was to have seven straight branches. 
he was the very first to suggest this, and he included this hand-drawn image in his work, the Mishnah Torah, composed between 1170 and 1180. Maimonides becomes a well-known philosopher and a physician. And although it's disputed here, there are tales of him. Uh, oh, sorry. Is, that's okay. <laughs> Richard the Lionheart apparently uh, tried to recruit him, but that, that's, uh, as I said, disputed. And then he went to work for the court of Saladin, the great enemy of the Crusaders and the Templars. Saladin recaptures Jerusalem in 1187 and reconsecrates the Temple Mount as a Muslim shrine. Temple Mount, as we know, had been the headquarters of the Knights Templar, and it's believed that it was during that time that the Templars discovered the hidden treasures of King Solomon, including the menorah and the Ark of the Covenant. So Maimonides was in Jerusalem praying at the Temple Mount around 1168, while it was still in the hands of the Crusaders. So soon after, he begins work on this Mishnah Torah and records his image of the straight-armed seven-branch menorah. And I can't help but wonder if he was not basing it on something he had actually seen. Mm -hmm. We do know he had dealings with the Crusaders. He negotiated the release of Jewish hostages. Now Saladin captures Jerusalem, and the Crusader kingdom is moved to Acre. And presumably the Templars would have moved their treasure there as well. In 1250, we see the French King Louis IX uh, defeated. Later, he becomes St. Louis. Uh, this is during the Seventh Crusade. And he is uh, taken hostage. And after a very large ransom is paid, he is released. But he stays in Acre and he travels to Nazareth instead of going straight home. When he finally does depart for France in 1254, it is on a ship laden with holy relics, a ship on which a tabernacle was built, just as Moses had built in the desert to house the Ark of the Covenant and the menorah. Now, we don't know which relics were on board this ship, but we do know that Louis had built perhaps his greatest work, the St. Chapelle Cathedral, specifically to house these relics. After arriving in France, he doesn't go straight home. He makes a detour and he visits the shrine of the remains of Mary Magdalene. And shortly after he returns home, work begins on a church. Um, which we're not going to talk about. <laughs> okay. But, um, <laughs> we can say uh, that we have found other representations of the menorah. Wow. Specifically, this straight arm Maimonides menorah in this time frame. Yeah, and we can uh -huh. also say that this place that he built, mm -hmm. for which I have one of the original contracts here um, was part of a number of other places that together form a giant pentagram on France, a near perfect uh, pentagram. Wow. And, and not a coincidental pentagram, but one that's been deliberately laid out where each 
of the five points um, is clearly um, unifiable and uh, uh, recognizable uh, with the same giant feature that if you look at it, you, you will go, oh my God, how have I never seen this? It's so, there's, there's two, three more Versailles-sized revelations uh, uh, to be made. Um, maybe an addition on, uh, on, on Louis the, the Ninth coming back from, uh, um, from the crusade. Uh, first about ships, uh, Louis the Ninth came back from Acre to uh, the south of France uh, in July 1254 on a boat carrying almost 300 people. That's the 13th century. Mm. Um, his boat was called a Nef de Montjoie, uh, was captained by a Knight Templar, brother Ramon or Ramon. And we know who he is uh, by now. Um, and you know, Louis the Ninth, who is the later Saint Louis, um, had very close ties with the Knights Templar, as uh, Chris said. Uh, at the beginning of the Seventh Crusade, uh, when he was captured uh, by the Egyptians, he was ransomed, uh, with, and uh, uh, they bought him uh, out with Templar money, uh, not without problems, but uh, 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 they provided the money, and he was freed. And then, and we're talking, you know, 12, 1250-ish, he lingered around in the Holy Land for another four years, while effectively the Crusade had been lost, Jerusalem was fully out of his reach. So what was he still doing? Um, now in 1251, and this is all uh, recorded uh, by his chroniclers. There's a number of chroniclers that described the life of Louis IX that were part of his entourage. So one was, for example, John of, John, uh, of Joinville, uh, he was a senator of um, of the Champagne region, and he was a close friend. and He he wrote a work uh, after the death uh, uh, of Louis the Ninth, in which he describes, you know, in minute detail, really in technicolor, um, uh, what went down. And he describes that in 1251, Louis the Ninth got into an argument with the Knights Templar, and this this is very interesting. Um, so you have to imagine formally the Knights Templar weren't answerable to the French king. They were only answerable to, you know, to the Pope and to God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but Louis the Ninth was such a charismatic figure. He was, you know, the archetype, the template of the Christian king. Uh, he was incredibly high regarded. He intervened in uh, disputes uh, between uh, other kings. Uh, he had an exemplary lifestyle um uh, incredibly pious and he was larger than life he was a legend uh, during his life already so the, the his status that made him into a saint was already part of him when he was still alive now in 1251 uh, the templar grandmaster was uh, renaud de Vichy, um independently negotiated the truce with the enemy with the sultan of damascus and this is while uh, I believe Louis the Ninth was uh, in Caesarea in the Holy Land, where he was building defenses, and there were all sorts of negotiations uh, with uh, with the Egyptians and, and the local sultans. Um, and when Louis heard of the Templars negotiating their own truce 
um, uh, with the Sultan of Damascus, he, he fell into the rage of a lifetime. He was incredibly angry. And Joinville describes how he summons the masters of the temple in his tent, together with the, uh, uh, the ambassador of Damascus. He makes them kneel before him uh, and he gives them this lecture and he demands uh, some sort of a, a, a retribution or, or repayment um, uh, for the wrongdoing that, they, that they've done. So he, he, he tears up uh, this treaty that uh, Renaud de Vichy has just uh, um, uh, created and he asks uh, uh, for some sort of payment. And this is when Renaud de Vichy offers the skirt of his cloak to the king and he literally offers the king, the king all the possessions of the temple. And he says to the king, you choose what you want to have. You choose what will repay our debt. And the writings of Joanville are very unclear about uh, what he chooses. But if you imagine that uh, Louis IX was the first, let's call mass relic hunter. So he built the Saint-Chapelle, this magnificent cathedral in Paris to house uh, the crown of thorns so already in uh, i think in 1232 38 ish mm -hmm. uh, he acquired the crown of thorns from the venetians uh, he had the holy lands the mandalion you know, the the effigy uh, the face of christ on a cloth uh, nails of the true cross a piece of the true cross uh, all these things he had housed in his saint chapelle and it's it's not described what he chose but when he gets on board his ship, um, at least two of his chroniclers, is that, is that, do I pronounce that correctly? Chroniclers yes. uh, describe mm -hmm. that there are holy relics on board. And even, uh, you know, after um, um, uh, three days after they've left, so to make the full story, so 1251, this happens with the Knights Templar. He lingers around for another three years and then he leaves Acre just after Easter 1254. So uh, he leaves on April 24, St. Mark's Eve, and the next day, that, which is actually his birthday, the 25th of April, uh, um, they are a little bit away from the shore. And then on the third day, they get into trouble off the coast of Cyprus. Um, and then when by some miracle, they, the ship starts floating again and uh, it's undamaged, uh, this Templar uh, brother uh, Raymond finds Louis the ninth uh, praying lying on the floor in a cross shape in front of these holy relics um, after they land oh where's my focus <laughs> after they land uh, on the coast of here in the south of France these holy relics they, they basically disappear from uh, from the record they are not you know, they are no longer described in any document um, um, and, you know, I can't be uh, more precise because, uh, you know, we're, we're full on uh, researching uh, this stuff. Um, but uh, uh, there's reason to believe that in later writings uh, ordered by Louis XIV, uh, uh, every trace of these uh, uh, has been made uh, to disappear. Um, and so there you have Link, um, Templars, possessions, uh, holy relic um, uh, um, collecting king 
uh, boat back to France, and then uh, 400 years later, uh, uh, Louis XIV uh, creating the world's biggest menorah. Yeah, and that puts it all together right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's I, I think that I, that's all, all all we can share for now. I think. <laughs> okay. That's really interesting. And so, uh, but yeah, so where did those things end up? You know, if that, um, but in, in, in for that ship to miraculously um, use, like you said, start floating again, um, there had to be a reason for that. Um, you know, and what, what is that reason? Well, it was it the, the, the power of God. I mean, was it the prayer that he was doing? I mean, you know, to make that, uh, make that trip. Uh, I don't know. That's interesting. Was well, it the uh, same uh, uh, dynasty, yeah. Corian? Was it the same dynasty? So Louis the Ninth, Saint Louis the Ninth, was he of the same dynasty as um, Louis the Fourteenth? Yes. Direct descendant. Yeah. Saint Louis you, is the patron saint of the House of Bourbon. Um, he's he's all over the place. There's a fortress near Oak Island. Which has a church that's dedicated to Saint Louis. Do you mean Louisburg? Yeah. Okay. Um, it is in Nova Scotia, but it's not near Oak Island. It's quite far away from Oak Island. But yeah, I, I know. I, I, uh, <laughs> yes, I know. It's named after. <laughs> no, okay. Yeah. Um, hmm. Why do you think these relics were kept by? Um, the dynasty instead of being given to the Vatican. It's a very good question. Did I stump you? <laughs> <laughs> they may have believed in a, uh, a lineage. Some of them did, for sure. Mm -hmm. They were related directly to Magdalene. And uh, to the Holy Family, so, um, and these were all ancient Jewish relics. You know. uh, yeah, they believed they were they, theirs, and they were rebuilding uh, the temple. Basically, uh, Louis built his chapel at uh, Versailles as uh, as a temple of Solomon, and um, they believe very strongly that. Uh, and for the second coming to occur, you needed to uh, the new temple to be built. And well, what, before what you, you can temple? before you can build a new temple, you have to have mm -hmm. the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, and mm -hmm. all the uh, furniture and, and furnishings light. and a light of the menorah. Yeah, mm -hmm. you would want to house it with all the relics. Right. Can I just share one image to to tease you a little bit? That was uh, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> commissioned by Louis the Fourteenth. I can't tell you where this is and who or who made it. Some of you might recognize it. Uh, I just want to share how we try to substantiate some of these ideas. This is the Lord we're looking at. Now, what is he looking at? He is looking at something weird. Oh, sorry, on the railing here. Mm -hmm. Let me see if I can. You see this thing? Can you see my mouse move? Do you recognize yep. what this is? That's a shovel. God is looking at the shovel. 
And maybe this is what they just got out of the ground. A menorah under a veil. And if you look to the right here, this gentleman here, suspiciously like Nicolas Poussin. Yeah, kind of hidden in the back there between the... He's uh, the only him. figure in the painting that is without color. <laughs> and then over here you have, and that's even more interesting, this is not the Ark of the Covenant. This is just the lid of the, the Ark of the seat. Covenant. Oh, wow. It's very clear. The There's the cherubim on the yeah. top. Only the top. Yep. Wasn't the lid of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat? Yes. Yes. The mercy seat. That's where God spoke to the high priest of the temple from that spot. Mm -hmm. This was created in the same year that Louis XIV acquired Shepherds of Arcadia to put in his private apartment mm -hmm. uh, in Versailles. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> I can't tell you. I know. Yeah, that's exactly right. But that's, oh my goodness. And that's fascinating because that's clearly a shovel down there. I mean, you see what looks like a, a, a vase of some sort or something like there, but right next to it in that small little picture right next to it, that's, that's a shovel. Now, it's why would there be a shovel in that picture? This you was, in, this, this no was in a, this was in a chapel uh, of a chateau of a, a personal chateau of a member of a, of an incredibly important member mm. of the royal family and this was not available for uh, for private viewing and mind you even you know a painting like uh, shepherds of arcadia that we discussed so much mm -hmm. these weren't public works you know shepherds of arcadia was never created to put in the louvre a museum to be uh, you know looked at by thousands of people every day these were private commissions uh, you know, made for uh, originally uh, uh, possibly people in the Vatican uh, to be looked at, to be admired, and maybe, you know, to be recognized by a small group of initiates who could, you know, do something with the clues uh, they would see on the painting. Uh, so these were all private works. So who is the person that's holding the menorah? Is it an archangel? I don't know, he's an angel in red. Yeah. Yeah, he's clear it's clearly a menorah that he's holding. You get and it's it's the it's the curved arms, but it's definitely a that's, menorah that he's holding. That's a sure. menorah. Yeah, There's no doubt about that. He seems to be yeah. yes, covering yeah. it and spiriting it away. Yeah, the other right. thing yeah, he's covering yeah. it with something. Another yeah. thing there which makes this maybe a little bit more plausible and that very few people realize is that there was more than one menorah. We always discuss the menorah, the Jewish menorah, the temple mm -hmm. menorah, the menorah in the Holy of Holiest. The Book of Kings explains how uh, Solomon, or da was it David to Chris or was it Solomon? I can't remember. Uh, Solomon. It was Solomon. Solomon had 10 copies made of the menorah. So there was an active duty menorah, who, uh, which stood in the Holy of Holiest, lighting the Ark of the Covenant and all scenery there. And there was t 10 more menorahs uh, in the hallways lighting the temple and they would interchange these menorahs um, uh, for example when they had to clean uh, the main menorah and so they they, uh, they were identical uh, and 
you can trace the menorah through uh, uh, reading the Torah uh, uh, and some writings, but the 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 most tantalizing writing of all is in uh, in the year uh, I believe it's the year seventy. Now th this is the year that uh, uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. So you had Vespasian, uh, who was the son of the emperor Titus, uh, who was in Jerusalem, uh, and they really ravaged uh, the city. Uh, now on the scene was a gentleman called Flavius Josephus. Uh, he was a defected Jewish priest. He was a personal friend of Vespasian. And uh, he created uh, um, a chronicle of the whole event, uh, the Book of War. It's very well known. Uh, uh, he's one uh, uh, of the most trustworthy uh, historians we have that was actually on the scene when uh, the temple was destroyed. And he writes uh, that he witnessed how a certain a guy called Phineas went into the secret storage and he took out two menorot, two menorahs, and gave them to the, gave them to the Romans two menorahs like the other ones in the storage. So if you read, mm -hmm. I mean, th again, this is, you can buy the Book of War uh, by Josephus on Amazon today and read this for yourself. My conclusion would be, so in the year 70, whatever happened before that, a number of menorahs, at least three, were still there. You have to imagine they, they were, I think, a thousand years old at the time. Eh? Mm -hmm. um, so, um, uh, they were somewhere around the temple, somewhere in a secret place on the Temple Mount. They gave two to the Romans. Uh, one of them uh, we can see on the Ark of Titus uh, in, uh, in in Rome, which was created, I think, in the year in the year eighty. Um, and that menorah allegedly stood in the Temple of Peace in Rome for at least another four hundred years until the Vandals uh, sacked the city. Um, but from the writings of Josephus, we know they didn't have uh, one, they had two. And there were even more left uh, in the Temple Mount, uh, in the secret storage. Uh, which means that it's possible that by the time that uh, the Crusaders arrived and conquered Jerusalem in 1099, and they started uh, King Baldwin set up his uh, his palace on Temple Mount. Uh, he gave uh, uh, a part of the palace to the Knights Templar uh, uh, after their uh, foundation. So it's it's possible that one or two or maybe even more menorahs were still on the Temple Mount uh, at that time. I mean that would be consistent with the writings of Josephus. Wow, interesting. Yeah, and I had no idea there was more than one. And I know Tom Burns even mentioned that. He said, that's right, there was more than one. And he had forgotten that, too. There was um, 11. No, I always, you know, because you always think they're just the one. Um, but there was actually 10, or you said 11. 10 copies made? Yeah. So there would be 11. One in the Holy of Holies and 10 lighting the outer courtyard, five yeah. per side. Wow. And they would be identical. And also, you, you, you have to realize, these things were enormous. They were as tall as my daughter, so they, they were... Uh, I don't know what it is in uh, in uh, feet and inches, but they were uh, one meter sixty high and uh, uh, something like a meter wide, so which is this, and and they were heavier. It was 50, 50 kilos of gold. Solid, one piece of gold. Solid gold. They had yeah. to be hammered out of one. Wow. Should, wow. should come up when uh, Gary Drayton uh, 
Uh, no <laughs> yeah yeah he that uh that metal detector the uh whatever it was the six thousand that should definitely pick that thing up oh my goodness <laughs> yeah exactly yeah wow that's um yeah if it if it's truly there but man oh man so but though and those could be and you said there's two of them in in germany right is that what you were saying or i'm sorry you said there was two of them on this um in in another country that are known to be there now so right no 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 two two were moved to rome in the year oh, 70. okay bro. okay all right and we and they disappeared from the record after oh, the year okay. what is it, 555 or something like that mm -hmm. and then perhaps you know some remained in temple mount to be dug up uh by the templars uh, we do know that uh, the templars did excavation they were they uh, uh, were assisted by some egyptian sufis uh, perhaps they had, uh, you know, privileged information uh, about the site. We don't know. What we do know is that um, uh, King Louis IX uh, in the 13th century spent an awful lot of time negotiating with the Egyptians uh, for, we don't know, but he was offered all the possessions of the temple. And he also boarded the ship loaded with holy relics for which they built a special tabernacle on the highest point of the ship, which was covered by a very expensive cloth uh, of gold. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the king was praying there uh, at priests, certain, uh, uh, yeah, with priests in special robes. Uh, it must have been quite something, not something you would do each day, actually. For, yeah. They had a certain robe for each day of the week, which, and they would attend this tabernacle on the voyage over. So, it sounded yeah. like they had the Ark of the Covenant because that one was kept, you know. That tabernacle like and it was attended by the Levite priests and they had to have a special um plate that that made of there were some special gemstones arranged in a special order yeah and that was to protect yeah. them from the effects of the ark which was radioactive <laughs> so yes uh, or something yeah for absolutely sure they had something special on board it's not something he just stowed below deck for the right. voyage right uh, no. it couldn't be touched as we yeah, know purpose-built a movable temple uh, mm -hmm. on the ship. Yeah, it definitely couldn't be touched. And you're right, the uh, the, the priest had the, it was very laid out in the Bible, it's very laid out exactly how that everything's to be arranged very mm -hmm. precisely. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And I always yeah. wondered about that too, because I reading the Bible and I and I hear that and I'm like, okay, why all this detail? Why why does it, you know, that makes sense. That, that makes total sense right there. Uh, it wow. Was a powerful thing from what we know, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you couldn't Even, be touched. Yeah, but how exactly strange right. that how strange that the Pope at the time would let King Louis the Ninth keep all this stuff. Mm -hmm. He asked for permission. Uh, yeah, papal legate. There was a papal legate in his entourage, and he had to ask for permission. It's recorded. Yeah, the most powerful the, king the Pope at gave, the time. Yeah, exactly. Just the Pope gave him uh, permission to bring these relics to Europe. And where it's are a, they? a very a, extremely good mm -hmm. remark, Alessandra. Mm -hmm. Right on the money. <laughs> um, you mentioned a cathedral called Saint Chapelle. Are there any relics there still on display? No. The crown of thorns were moved to Notre Dame in Paris. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't think that there might be some nails or something, but the the, the big relics have all been moved. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, though. 
Oh man, it's uh, <laughs> one of yeah, it's one of the most beautiful places in France. You mentioned that King Louis might have uh, thought of himself as a member of the Holy Bloodline. Am I getting that right? But isn't that something that he he couldn't really publicize, right? I mean, it's a heretical thought, the whole, whole concept of holy bloodline. Mm -hmm. Well, what he could do is he could act like it. And it certainly looks like he did. Uh, so if you look at, for example, at the, the royal chapel in Versailles, um, there's in the entire chapel, there isn't a cross. Uh, there's just uh, references to Solomon and his temple. Even the sculpture work about Jesus are all scenes about Jesus in the temple. Um, and you have to imagine he would stand there in, uh, during certain ceremonies. Um, the king would be standing in the middle facing the altar. And we now know he would be facing directly uh, to Jerusalem and everybody else had to face him. They weren't allowed to face the altar or anything. They had to face the king. Hmm. So he, you know, he acted as if he was a god in in every way. And, and you know, another one of these factoids that you find in this mystery all the time. I mentioned that um, Louis the Ninth left Acre in 1254 uh, on April uh, 24. April 24 is the day that the sun sets on the exact center of the giant menorah of Versailles. So on April 24, or was it last week, if you would have stood in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles, uh, gazing you know, out uh, to the east in the direction of Oak Island, you would have seen the sun set exactly in the middle, lighting the central candle of the menorah. Wow. Really amazing. That is truly. And you know, and you know, I'm sorry, I, I know Alessandro's getting ready to ask another question. Hold just for a second, mm -hmm. but I and I know this isn't really, but people say, you know, I've I've seen people come up and say, well, yeah, you can connect, of course, two points together when we talk about Jerusalem and the and the uh, and the menorah in uh, Versailles. You can connect two points with a straight line. No, it's not just a straight line; it's a straight line going down the center of the menorah, correct? That leads right directly to. It's so if you take that line going straight up the center, uh, the center part of it, that line going all the way down leads to. Yeah, the main. To, yeah, the main so spine not, or the artery. Yeah, yeah whatever you want to call yeah. it, the main, the main stem of it, or, or, or the, the the of the base of it, it, goes down that line. So that line, if you follow that line, it doesn't deviate; it goes straight to Jerusalem. So it's yeah, you can say two points connected. You know, yeah, a straight line connects two points, but it actually goes right up that. So if you lead that line all the way down, that's not that you can't dispute. That that you can't say is just a, oh yeah, well it's just a you know. Two we, we've been. After we uh, we we had been on uh, on TV uh, in season eight, you know, we've been slaughtered uh, online by people who said, you know, any two points will always be on exactly. the line. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right, that's correct. <laughs> it is. Uh, but two points on a line, you know, they don't constitute an alignment. An alignment, um, an alignment needs uh, uh, needs needs some uh, uh, a number of of artifacts. You know, it needs intent mm -hmm. uh, and so, some sort of uh, uh, plausibility. Uh, so for it, 
uh, so you need to be able to connect the two um, from uh, their their content context, uh, the historical context, uh, the available technology uh, at the time. Um, and then if you look at uh, uh, Versailles versus the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, um, was the technology there? Absolutely. The French uh, exercised uh, uh, geometry on a giant scale much, much earlier than people would hold possible. And we have uh, uh, numerous books uh, by mathematicians, uh, uh, gardeners, astronomers, architects, that, that even with illustrations of the Palace of Versailles, that, that detail how they did this on the ground, what tools they used, how they used uh, the stars, um, uh, where they would position people, how they would uh, draw lines, triangulate. Um, so to us, it's completely plausible that they could do this. Um, then there's, so that's technology. Then there's intent. Was there the intent? Can we make a link between um, Versailles and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that would make a connection between these places plausible? Uh, answer is yes. Um, Versailles is shaped like a giant menorah. The menorah that was housed on the Temple Mount in the first temple, lighting the Holy of Holies, while uh, Louis XIV went out of his way um, to put depictions of the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the menorah in his royal chapel, behaving like Solomon with all the, the rituals uh, around it. Uh, you know, the, the, I, don't, I don't think that is coincidence. The alignment is too precise. The historical context is too connected. And the, uh, um, the technology was readily available. And there are numerous examples of Louis XIV showing his interest uh, for for map making, uh, you know, founding the Royal Academy of Sciences uh, with uh, Giovanni Cassini, the uh, the friend or the, the Italian astronomer uh, who later established uh, the meridian uh, of France. Uh, you know, they, they did this multiple times to multiple locations, uh, but only one of them was on television. Yeah, this is uh, from Court Lindahl here. It is. It comes up Facebook user on the chat here, but uh, yeah, that's from Court, and he says he agrees, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, it was a legitimate and was planned. So yep. thanks, Court. Yep. Yep. Okay, I have two questions. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. One question is about the menorah. How did it actually work? The original menorah. Is there a description of it anywhere? Uh, was it like a candlestick, or was there more to it? Was it um, fueled with um, oil, like an oil lamp? Were there candles? It was was a uh, more technological than that? No, it wasn't. I, think you have, I don't know if you still have the manual there, uh, Chris. <laughs> Somewhere, yes. He has uh, a manual for it. <laughs> I have a page open to it, sorry. <laughs> but um, yes, it was not a, a candlestick. It was not like a candelabra, but... Uh, it did use olive oil and uh, had cups on there for the for the oil and uh, yeah it, it was an oil lamp it was it was not a candlestick although you do see modern menorahs with uh, candles they usually use uh, beeswax candles only so there's uh, you know uh, a bit of a difference there but the original was an oil lamp 
uh, to be sure. It says in uh, the book of Exodus, Exodus 25, 31 to 40, you are to make a menorah of pure gold. It is to be made of hammered work. His base, shaft, cups, ring out of, ring of outer leaves and petals are to be of one piece with it. It is to have six branches extending from its sides, three branches of the menorah on one side of it and three on the other, etc., etc., etc. So it's, you know, it, it reads like an uh, IKEA manual. Uh, it's 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 all in the Bible. It, they they tell you exactly what it had to look like. Yep. And it doesn't it say doesn't. about being straight or curved, but it's straight. Nope. Is uh, like the the manuscript that you've shown uh, there, Christopher. Definitely, uh, um, definitely straight on that, and it lines up. Did you have another question too, Alessandra? You're getting an A, by the way. Quite a few people said you're getting an A plus for all your work you've done here today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just wondering if, uh, thank you. I was just wondering if Menorah was um, some a device of some kind. I mean, Ark of the Covenant was some sort of a device to communicate with God. And then um, we know that the, the demon Asmodeus had uh, Shamir, the hissing serpent, uh, a tool that could cut stone. So I'm um, thinking, well, this Menorah maybe was more than a candelabra. <laughs> <laughs> but that, maybe that's a question for Asian aliens, for George Sukolos. <laughs> <laughs> I think the logical okay. explanation would be that it's a lamp. And you needed yeah. it because okay. otherwise you, you wouldn't see the Ark of the Covenant. It was very, very dark inside the temple. Right. There was some right. symbology to it. Um, it was said to uh, represent what's known as the Shekinah. And uh, that is the feminine aspect of Jehovah. And if you could imagine that the Holy of Holies was a representation of the universe, of, of all creation, then the menorah was the lights within that creation as well. The and it Shekinah, was meant to be feminine? The Shekinah, yeah. Um, you usually hear about a Holy Trinity, right? Uh, you know, Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit, I believe, derived from the Shekinah idea. And the Shekinah was the presence of God in the material world. It was said that was needed because if we were to behold God as he is, uh, we would be utterly destroyed. Our, our material bodies could not handle it. And so the Shekinah was created or separated from himself to be the sort of active presence of him in the world. That turns up in the, the burning bush and also in the light of the menorah. Do you think the light of the menorah origina originally came from something like the burning bush? Like there was some kind of an event where uh, this divine light appeared and they managed to capture that um, with the menorah? I think that's what it symbolizes, to be sure. I don't know if it was any sort of a um, otherworldly uh, instrument of any kind, but uh, it certainly symbolized that. I like the idea of uh, there being a balance between feminine and masculine, let's put it that way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because um, I was having a conversation with, with another researcher about this yesterday, and I pointed out that the monotheistic religion is so um, masculine, and in paganism, we always had masculine and feminine, and yeah. they were, you know, goddess and a god and a goddess 
yeah. oftentimes as spouses, right? You had that mm -hmm. in ancient Egypt with um, um, Isis and Osiris, right? Yes. But here we are, and it's kind of, you know, <laughs> out of whack, God is male. And mm -hmm. we, we, we women are like, well, where's our place, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, well, yeah. I, I did know that about the Shekinah. I, I will. I will research that. Thank you. There's a, a pretty good book called uh, When God Had a Wife uh, about oh, the consort right. of Jehovah. Right. There's right. a few other books out there, but uh, it's thought there is debate about it that okay. mentioned in the Bible is this uh, personage is called Asherah. And it's thought that at one time uh, before monotheism, uh, Jehovah, Yahweh, did have a wife and uh that, that was changed down the line and uh didn't sit well with some people mm -hmm. and, and they have split off and gone underground okay i might be totally wrong with this one i i'll just throw it out there doesn't asherah mean rose uh it means grove like a grove of trees oh and uh so she had an asherah pole which was like a stylized tree, which may have become the menorah. Yep. Uh, oh, okay. And also the tree of life uh, in the Garden of Eden. So. Um, right, and we see something like discussion. that in in Sumerian, right? Hmm. Yeah. Sumerian Babylonian art. It's there. mentioned in the Bible several times yeah. too about the right. astrology. Yeah, and this brings you to the almost literal roots of the House of France. Uh, where there's several layers uh, deeper than uh, than what you can see, mm -hmm. but it it really appears they uh, and they 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 knew their history um, and that they felt strongly connected uh, to this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I'm ready to ask my second question. Yes. May I? <laughs> All right. Okay. Can't wait. Uh, so you established that there is an alignment between Jerusalem, Versailles. Island. What are you thinking in terms of um, timeline? Which site would have been established first? I'm thinking Jerusalem was number one, and then that led to Versailles, and then that led to Oak Island? Or do you think Oak Island predates the construction in Versailles, or were they built simultaneously? Do you have any idea about that? Great question, huh? <laughs> I think it's likely Jerusalem. They were Jerusalem yeah. yeah, Jerusalem was there first. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was in the. <laughs> That's the source, right? That was that was the that was the easy part, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, what we say there? Um, yeah, that alignment was was there with Jerusalem and Versailles. Um, before Versailles was Versailles, I think, um, as we know it today. Um, and that, that yeah. goes into quite a big history of that land and its ownership. Mm -hmm. It was owned by the Gandhi family, who were uh, in very tight with the Medici family. Um, a few previous kings were brought there. Uh, said to be hunting grounds right but um i have other ideas that maybe there was some sort of initiation going on there at that site uh before 
Louis XIII built his chateau and then the 14th built upon that. But it's all just conjecture at this point, but trying to put the pieces together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And the, the, the North America link is tantalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, if you, if you follow the menorah to the east, you land in Nova Scotia. Uh, that's clear. Um, you miss Oak Island, arguably, because the alignment is off by under a degree, as I said. Uh, by now, we do know the exact point, uh, which is completely and utterly amazing. But uh, we hope to uh, surprise you with that in season nine, if it kicks off. Mm-hmm. I didn't say when, I said if. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do know is that, uh, let's say, the Royal Academy of Sciences, which was founded by Colbert, the Prime Minister of Louis XIV in 1666, um, had a above average interest in Mahone Bay. And we found uh, some uh, pretty good evidence to, uh, to support that. And there was, and, and again, you need to, to think, did they have the technology? Um, yes, they did. Um, one of the, uh, they, they hired a number of people, you know, they hired the best scientists uh, of their age to be on the Royal Academy. There was Giovanni Cassini, already mentioned him, the astro- uh, Italian astronomer, but they also uh, hired a countryman of, uh, of mine, uh, Mr. Christian Huygens who was the first guy who managed to make a reliable portable clock. Um, and that was something you needed uh, to be able to record the time uh, between movement of the stars. So the longest longitude. Exactly. Sorry, so if I you, so to, to, so to, to calculate, uh, you know, latitude was known since I think the year 30 or so or around uh, 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 um, uh, the year zero already uh, the Phoenicians uh, new latitude but longitude was a was a whole different story uh, and to measure longitude uh, especially uh, uh, timing is important so if you have a stick a pair of good eyes and a good clock you can basically work out where you are um, you know even if you don't have a map this is the same way uh, GPS works today um, uh, you can go to uh, to another uh, country, and uh, a GPS location will tell you what your well. The GPS device will tell you what your GPS location is. That doesn't necessarily mean you know where you are on the map, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that worked uh, uh, the same at the time. Um, uh, in the 1670s, they had portable clocks. Uh, they had the knowledge of triangulation, all the mathematics, the astronomy. And again, uh, they had an above average interest in uh, Emma Home Bay. Mm-hmm. And that's all I can see. <laughs> Since you uh, brought up Colbert, um, I could tie that back into the menorah real quick. Yeah. Um, Colbert had in his possession uh, an old Jewish book. And uh, Louis had asked him to get it translated. And that book uh, just happened to be the Maimonides Mishnah Torah with the hand-drawn straight-arm menorah in it. And this was just about the time as they were planning the straight-arm menorah in the garden of Versailles. 
Yeah. Book was translated in 1678. Louis but de Compiègne, he, I think, was yeah. the guy. Yes, but he had it in his possession uh, yep. some time before that. He likely confiscated it, though, from Fouquet. <laughs> I'm actually going to, um, I'm going to, I guess, uh, um, James McQuiston, uh, Jim, has tried to call in twice, and I've missed it. I, I The phone's <laughs> yeah. here, and it never, it never <laughs> rang, and he's like, he's Sorry, not James. answering my call. And I'm like, well, so I'm going to call him right now and see if we can get him on the line, because he's got a question. Let's see if I can get this. This is one of them burner phones. You know, I'll, Let me make sure I can get this thing working here. I'm going to call him real quick. We'll see we know Jim a little bit, uh, hold him in very high regard. Yes. Uh, maybe this is also the place to uh, to say, you know, we work together with uh, Chris Dona uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, we've worked with uh, Aaron Helton, uh, you know, fantastic oh, people. Cool. Sorry about that. We know Jim a little bit, uh, hold him in very high regard. Hello. Oh. Yeah. Hey, Jim, you're going to have to turn your, uh, turn your uh, laptop down or whatever you're watching there. James. Yeah, turn that volume down. So there we go. All right. Is, Jim, are you online? Okay. All right. Yeah, oh. we can hear you now. All right. Welcome to the show. <clears throat> Thank you for calling in. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I didn't. I didn't mean to uh, ignore you there. But I I never heard the phone ring. No, it's okay. Um, I was busy listening to everyone. Yep. I'm hearing a little feedback there. You're gonna have to turn that down. You got the volume on your laptop. You got to turn that down. Yeah. Did, did you have, okay, there you go. Did you have a question for these guys? Well, uh, first of all, I just want to say hi to everyone. I've worked with every one of you on the screen, so mm -hmm. it's kind of like hey, James. Home. we care to <laughs> see you all together. Mm -hmm. Colleagues. Yep. <laughs> Are you still there? Yes. Okay. There's a delay between what I'm right. That's why. Screen. Yeah, that's why you have to turn that down. You might as well okay. just turn that off because it, it's going to mess you okay. up. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you guys know my uh, William Alexander theory, but the bigger theory or the bigger uh, what I use is the family connections. And because I've been into that for a long time before I ever got into Oak Island. And there's, there are some connections here that would, uh, that do connect Poussin directly to Nova Scotia. Hmm. And, um, he was, uh, he moved to Rome in 1624. And William Alexander was also there in 1624. He traveled there to get a dispensation for uh, Charles I of England to marry uh, Princess Henrietta Maria mm -hmm. because she was Catholic and Charles was Protestant. And so um, what's interesting about that is that Henrietta was the sister to Louis XIII and she would have been the aunt to Louis XIV. And uh, James, uh, Charles' father, James, kind of got the whole thing, the ball rolling with Nova Scotia. But 
he passed away just as they were getting underway with the Knights of Baronet, and Charles took it over. So, and Henrietta was Charles' number one uh, advisor. Once they got married, they never left, hardly ever left each other's side. In fact, quite often, people had to go through Henrietta Maria to even get to Charles. So you have the aunt of the king that you folks are talking about <laughs> being intimately involved with the whole uh, naming of Nova Scotia and the settling over there. Yeah. And uh, so uh, another little family thing here that's very interesting is that, as you know, the first Eskinard Acadia Eagle painting was done by a man who was typically known as Gersino. I guess that's how you pronounce it. That's but his real name was Giovanni Francesco Barberi. Barberi. And his family was the same family as Cardinal Francesco Barberini. And that is who uh, not only William Alexander went to Rome to talk to, because he couldn't get to see the Pope. So he had to talk to an emissary, which was Barberini. Yeah. But Barberini was also uh, the main one of the main uh, supporters of Poussin. He was his patron. Yes. And fact, the, the very place that the original uh, painting by Gersino shows up in history is in the collection of the brother of Cardinal Barberini. So these families are so tightly knit, mm -hmm. um, all, all surrounding this painting of Poussin, or at least the, the idea of the Etienne Arcadia, Arcadia Ego. Um, that you have the connection of Alexander being there specifically to talk to uh, Cardinal Barberini, who was specifically the patron of Poussin. And um, it's in, uh, one other little interesting connection here is that uh, the the painter for the king was George de la Tour. Well, William Alexander left the area surrounding Oak Island and New Ross, which was called Merligash. He granted that to Claude and Charles de la Tour, father and son. And they gave their full name as uh, like Claude de Saint-Athene de la Tour. And uh, George's family was uh, one of his own sons was named a team. So it was the same family in um, France. The Latours that, that um, were involved with the painting for the king. And when when uh, George Latour quit being the painter for the king of France, um, Poussin went back and took his place. So mm -hmm. all these families knew each other really well. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so, because Alexander founded and named Nova Scotia, and because uh, Charles I and his wife Henrietta were his main patrons to go over there and settle it, uh, there's just so many links. And this is the one thing about Oak Island, as you guys all know, is that it's like a web. 
and you mm-hmm. and this little part connects to this little part and that little yep. part and you have a big spider web of it all. Mm-hmm. What it all means in the end is sometimes a little hard to to determine, you know. But you always hear the the phrase, "You can't, it can't be coincidence." Well, it sort of can't be coincidence that three specific families, the Barberini, Alexander, or actually Stewarts and Latours, were all connected with a story, and they all knew each other in. Italy and Rome, and, mm-hmm. and I mean in France and Rome, and then they're all connected with the Oak Island story. So I just wanted to pick that in there somewhere. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. And that was Court Lindahl that I was putting up. His statements there were coming through on that. So uh, thanks again, Court. Appreciate that very much. I was putting up his uh, his comments. <clears throat> Excuse me, as you were speaking there, Jim. Um, Wow, that that is fascinating too, and the and the fact that these families are connected. I mean, that's and again, it's all these little pieces that go together to tell us the story. And again, I wish we could be so definitive on it. I wish we could nail it down and say, "Yep, this is exactly what took place." But man, the clues are all there, aren't they? So, that one of the writers that has also pointed to William Alexander as being. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, I don't know if I'm talking over you or not. No, go ahead. You're fine. <laughs> okay, Court Court was one of the people who um, we had a, a number of discussions and traded books, and he pointed to William Alexander uh, fairly strongly as having something to do with Oak Island. Uh, so did Mark Finnan, who's one of the more prolific writers about Nova Scotia. So did uh, Reginald Harris, the guy that wrote the very first book on Oak Island. So did Joan Hope Harris. And even Steve Sora got in the mix there in a magazine article I found. So you have a lot of people that have done a lot of deep, deep, deep research mm-hmm. that are coming up with something, you know, like I have a specific theory about it, but the bigger theory is that Alexander had something to do with Oak Island, and now we know he ha- he was in Rome when he was in Rome talking to the guy who was the patron of Poussin wow. in the same year, the, the same year that Poussin got there, he got there too. Wow. So anyway, it, it is, uh, I don't know how you'd ever chart this out. I always think, boy, if you could, you know, like you say on the police shows, they got all the little stickers of paper and they have the <laughs> strings running from here to here. Mm. Oh my God, we need a a barn wall, and that wouldn't be big enough. <laughs> <laughs> Can I point something out? Yeah, please. Yes. So we know that Poussin made this painting, Shepherds of Arcadia, and he encoded some kind of a message in it. And that painting seems to fit Oak Island, the swamp, Nolan's Cross quite well. Mm-hmm. And we know that the king, the French king, acquired Poussin's painting later. Right? So Poussin seemed to have been informed about Oak Island before the French king. Does it mean yes. that Poussin got his information from Sir William Alexander while they were hanging out in Rome? Perhaps. Um, well, that, would be a, that would be an interesting theory. And, and, you know, I don't think everything has to be like a conspiracy. People just sit at the pub and say, hey, you know, I, I just was over there last year. My theory is that Alexander actually went to Nova Scotia in 1623 
and uh, when the uh, foundation was built up at Alessandra's house, mm-hmm. and I have some reasons for that, but uh, then that he would have, if, if that's true, whether he did or not, he still had a big involvement there. He sent a ship over there and he wrote a whole story about it in 1624, and then he went to Rome to get a dispensation for uh, Charles to marry Henrietta, and he was in Rome at the same time that Poussin was. So, um, again, we need a real big barn and a whole bunch of twine <laughs> and a bunch of <laughs> three M stick of notes. Absolutely, it's a uh, it's uh, it's absolutely amazing. Thanks for pointing that out, uh, James. Yeah, I love how you great. always stick to the facts and uh, make the connections. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I know one of the uh, one of the members, uh, a couple of them actually have, have commented said, "Wouldn't it be great if we could get all of you guys, all of you, the Alessandra? You know, we call you C and C, Chris and Corian, uh, and James <laughs> McQuiston. Yeah, C and C. We get Corian, and uh, and we get James McQuiston, and then we got to get Chris Donut, and we got to get Jake Roberts. Uh, if we could get all of you guys together in one room around a table." Wouldn't that be fascinating, folks? I mean, that would be just be, I, I don't know. I, I would be in 7 7 right there. Yeah. Tailgate party at Chip's house. Yeah. <laughs> I got a pretty good, a pretty good size deck. I don't know if I could pitch you all out there, but man, wouldn't that be something? I don't, I think we could go all day, all weekend. Oh, uh, just yeah, all take several days. All I think. Thank goodness. Take several days. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it would for sure. I, th- I, th- I, um, can I point something out? Oh, absolutely. Uh, to, to, to make a, another connection uh, again, uh, thanks, James, uh, you know, for being a, a pal and always uh, answering our emails and exchanging ideas. Uh, you know, only together we will solve this thing. And I'm absolutely convinced that we're all working on the on the same secret from a different angle. Uh, so uh, uh, fantastic. Shepherds of Arcadia, there's a lot of debate about when this was painted. By the but the most authoritative source states that it was painted around 1655, um, and that makes it uh, 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 a, a, a even more interesting than it already is because in 1655, a guy named Louis Fouquet was in Rome to buy art for his brother. Uh, his brother was Nicolas Fouquet. Uh, and uh, he's well known for being uh, uh, the finance minister of uh, Louis XIV, um, who uh, built uh, this uh, Chateau Volvicomte, uh, where he uh, um, allegedly uh, bedazzled uh, the king uh, and uh, gave a party uh, uh, that made Louis XIV so jealous that he uh, arrested uh, Nicolas Fouquet, threw him in prison for the rest of his life. Uh, he confiscated... The man in the Iron Sorry? Mask? Yeah, Man in the Iron Mask. Oh, wow, oh, really? Or was that really the reason? Mm-hmm. If you... Um, so, <laughs> after 1655, Louis Fouquet, and now, again, you know, he's in Rome for a year to purchase art from his uh, uh, from from uh, painters in Rome, uh, uh, he's the guest of Poussin. They talk together, and uh, on the seventeenth of April, sixteen fifty six, he sends a letter to his brother Nicolas Fouquet, in which he says, "You know, this Poussin has a secret so great, you know, not even a king could uh, you know could touch him. 
uh, um, it, it's absolutely amazing. Now, you just brought, off Shepherds of, uh, brought up Shepherds of Arcadia, the painting on the screen. And now, and, and, and remember the faces of these shepherds. And then uh, Chris and I will show you a painting of Nicolas Fouquet. I'll bring that up now. Yep, there we go. Yep. This is Nicolas Fouquet, the man who made Louis XIV jealous. Now, if you look closely at this painting, what do you see here? A shepherd. What the hell yeah. are these guys doing behind the curtain Just on this painting? Ever so slightly pulled aside. Ever so hidden. Oh my goodness. Look at that. And what is this guy holding? What do you think this is, Chris? Well, it could be a shovel. It could be an oar. I think he I think they are in a boat there. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Want me to continue with that? Well, yeah, if you want. <laughs> I mean, did you try to match that, that with with an existing painting? This is a one. This this face is a one hundred percent match with Shepherds of Arcadia. Yeah, I think it's the same character from yeah. with, two with different both sources. So he had that painting first. Um, this painting is from. Uh, let me check. I want to. Um, 16 this is five years earlier this is 1650. wow we talk a bit about the legs that you see there of, uh, of somebody else mm -hmm. right here yeah stepping away they only have one shoe on one sandal oh yeah look at that i see here this is one now if you go back in uh, mythology there is a very famous one-shoed man that was Jason of Jason and the Argonauts, the Greek mythology. And of course, he headed the ship, the Argo, across the seas. Mm -hmm. um, they had a run in, the Argonauts, with six armed giants on an island. I don't know what six armed might remind you of. They defeated these giants and laid them out on the shores of this island. <clears throat> that was one part of the story. Jason, the main part of the story of the Argonautica is the search for the Golden Fleece. Yeah. A Golden Fleece, uh, a ram skin that was hung upon an old oak tree, mm -hmm. at the base of which was a dragon or serpent. Now, one of the interpretations of this is that the golden fleece goes back to a tradition of using a woolen fleece stretched over a wooden frame and placed into a, a running river and that it would pick up flecks of gold from the river which you could then hang upon a tree to dry and pick the gold out it was a way of, of like panning for gold in a gold river wow. so here we have oak trees, gold rivers, six-armed giants on a seashore. The island was called 
uh, amount of bears. And it's interesting that Mahone Bay, well, we think it's named for a French type of ship, but in Celtic, Mahone means a bear as well. So, I want to say something about Argonauts in the year 1655. May I? Yes, please. I By think, all means. Um, I think James McQuiston said in his book that um, Sir William Alexander saw himself as uh, one of the Argonauts or maybe even the captain of, <laughs> of the mm. ship. Jason. So could this painting have to do something with Sir William Alexander? It's a good thought. Also, um, is James still listening? Mm -hmm. I believe he's still on the phone. You there, James? Yeah, I, I was just going to add that he wrote a book. Alexander wrote a book in 1624, which would have been the year after it's thought that the New Ross Foundation was built. Um, and it's called uh, Encouragement to Colonies. So if you haven't ever looked it up, look it up. But he starts out implying that he is Typhus, who was the captain of the ship Argo, and that yeah. he is going to uh, find the Golden Fleece in mm -hmm. Nova Scotia. Well, his good friend was William Bond, who wrote a, had landed Newfoundland and wrote a book called The Golden Fleece. And uh, William Bond, I tracked their family down because that's what I do and he was directly related to Anthony Bond on Oak Island wow that's in my uh, I think that's in my Oak Island and the Mayfly book so uh, here you have people with that concept in their brain of the ship Argo and the uh, the Golden Fleece because they you know even Bacon you know he wrote the book New Atlantis was about a utopia and uh, uh, William Alexander called his New Scotland it was going to be a utopia mm -hmm. and so that whole concept of, he had a, a, a hero I think his name was Valganon who was a Frenchman who had helped Scotland quite a bit and he had actually escaped the troubles of Europe and build himself a little retreat in the woods. And he was like this uh, person that Alexander looked up to. So that's why I think he built that place in, in uh, New Ross to kind of pattern himself after Belgenon. So these people that had a lot of money, you got to think about what the situation was back then. There were plagues everywhere. There were religious wars. A lot of times the people really didn't care which religion they belonged to. They uh, just wanted to keep their head on. <laughs> you know, so if, it was the, if the Protestant forces were larger, they would sign the thing to the Protestant king and say, yeah, I'm Protestant, and, you know, vice versa. Because they're just, it's, the number one motive for everything is survival. And as soon as you survive and you get to be a big shot, now it becomes greed and wanting power and all that. And I think a lot of these guys basically wanted to get out of town. They wanted to escape the religious wars. They wanted to escape the plagues. Uh, Alexander talked a lot about how uh, there was virtually nothing left in resources in Scotland and England. And he said, We've, we're, we're down to fishing or attacking other countries' ships with letters of mark as the only way that we can get any money because we've 
taken everything away. We mined all the gold, we mined all the silver, we cut down all the trees. You know, we've got to do something. You know, that was his yeah. big point. And there was uh, Nova Scotia right for the taking. May so I say anyway, something about oh, the year 1655? Yeah. Sorry, James. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, Corian, you said that that painting, Shepherds of Arcadia, was most likely painted in 1655, yes? Yes. So, that would have been one year after the New Ross estate was destroyed by the order of Oliver Cromwell, and it was executed by, um, it was done by uh, Robert Sedgwick. So, so th that's also from James McQuiston's research. He says that um, in 1654, Neuros was raised to the ground, and one year later, we have this painting. I'm not yeah. saying that Neuros is on that painting. No, not at all. <laughs> I just It just occurred to me that <laughs> Never know. 1654, 1655, yeah. not a big well, gap. Well, of course, we've, uh, we've seen uh, the post from uh, Aaron Helton uh, online that uh, confirmed that the alignment uh, of the, let's say the short arm of Nolan's cross points to uh, to New Ross. Um, that's that's absolutely amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Again, without giving everything away, uh, we've shared online that the Versailles menorah points at various places. Mm -hmm. So the alignment with Jerusalem, I, I think, is undisputable. There's another very tantalizing one to the Chateau de la Rochefoucauld. Uh, the place that uh, uh, the Oak Island team visited a couple of seasons back. Uh, if you uh, look at Versailles from the top, you see a giant Latin cross. The short arm of that cross to the south lands in the courtyard of the Chateau de la Rochefoucauld. It's very precise. Um, and Rochefoucauld was mentioned on Zena Halpern's map. Yeah, absolutely. Um, almost all of these pathways, all of these arms point to significant places. Uh, we can give you one other, uh, the Chateau of Montségur, <gasps> near Rennes-le-Chateau, <laughs> confiscated by Louis the Ninth. Confiscated? Uh, yes. And uh, it became uh, into, uh, it came into his uh, ownership, yes. Uh, it was even uh, ransacked and ruined on his command by his orders. Uh, and of course, this is one of the locations that people claim uh, uh, for the grill. Uh, right. uh, allegedly, uh, the night before uh, uh, the chateau was, uh, uh, was conquered, uh, two people, and, and this is again recorded in the annals of the Inquisition, two people escaped on a rope uh, carrying something uh, which uh, uh, we lost trace of. Uh, uh, this is one of the places that Versailles uh, points at. Yeah. So and, this uh, was... uh, and if, yeah, if you know that the Nolan's Cross has alignments mm -hmm. uh, uh, to New Ross, I uh, can only think that's significant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that castle yeah, kind of Montsegur. In interesting how... The... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting confused with the screen, but... It... It was kind of interesting how it came about because I really don't know why I even noticed it, but I just happened to notice it and I sent it off to the Oak Island team. And then I did a little bit better drawing and sent it off, but I'm no surveyor. So I talked to a gentleman that has done a lot of work on Nolan's Cross, 
uh, to the degree that's way over my head. But I asked him to do it, and he came up with a, a legitimate survey. So then I thought, well, the only way we're going to know, or the only way Oak Island is probably going to buy into it is if Steve Duffel gets involved. So uh, Alessandra picked a point up there that represented the the uh, foundation, and Steve, uh, you know, did. It's like it's you're citing a cross to cross on like it's a surveyor's transit or a rifle. It's not like just a point. And he confirmed it. So then I heard through the grapevine that Aaron had confirmed it too. So it's uh, right. way over confirmed at this point. But the other, yeah. the, the other point that real quick I'd like to make that I got to get going too. But um, you know, people may take Nolan's Cross as uh, some type of marker with a grain of salt, but we absolutely know that stones were used as markers to measure from because in London is there was an actual stone called Charing Cross, and it is the notional center of London, which means that all uh, measurements to the city of London are measured to that actual point. And of course, the only other point in the whole world in all of history that was ever called Charing Cross is New Ross, right down mm -hmm. below the foundation. Mm -hmm. So there is absolutely no question that monolithic type stones uh, were used for measurement devices. So, you know, that, that has to be taken right off the table. And um, so I'm a firm believer in Nolan's Cross meaning something real serious to this whole story. Yep. I'm on board with that too. <laughs> I know Alessandra was going to make a make a point there too. It's okay. I um, it's okay. I'll pass. Okay. Keep talking. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. Bye. Thank, thank you. Thank, thank, you, thank so you so much. much. Appreciate your coming Thanks, by. Mike. That's great information. You have a great day, sir. Before we get too far away from Nicholas Fouquet, can we jump back to his dad real quick? Mm -hmm. That be all right. <laughs> Let's do that. Is that okay? <laughs> Yeah, so 1635, uh, his father, Francois Fouquet, he joins this venture started by Cardinal Richelieu, and it's called the Company of the American Islands. So he's already a very wealthy man. He has this huge library, and it's full of a, a giant collection of the latest globes and maps of the world. And in this library, you would find a dugout canoe from the Huron tribe in Canada. Uh, he was in charge of explorations to the Caribbean settlements for France, as well as the, uh, the New World. He was instrumental in those early uh, explorations over there. And his library was the meeting place for the captains as they re would return. And they would all congregate there and report on their adventures in the New World in Nova Scotia and Arcadia. So that was Nicholas Fouquet's father. And that's something that, you know, I found out, and I mentioned this in the pre-show there, we were talking about the fact that, um, you know, uh, King Louis XIV, you know, during his reign, which I guess was one of the longest reigns of any monarch uh, in Europe there, I guess, for, um, but he 
you know, many of these settlements that you're talking about and the exploration they did in the new world. And I was fascinated to find out when I was reading this and getting gathering a little bit of my little bit of research, you guys have a ton, but that um, Marquette, and I mentioned this earlier, Marquette, um, one of the men, I, Jacques, uh, is it Jacques Marquette? Jacques Marquette. Yeah, and he, yeah. he, he was the one that actually founded the cities of Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and Ontario, Canada, which are right across the St. Mary's River from each other, which is where I'm from, uh, and also Marquette, and St. Ignace, which is on the north side of the Mackinac Bridge. So, I mean, I, that just tied it all together for me, and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is like... <laughs> so, but I really had no idea that, um, you know, because I hadn't, researched it or looked into it before but it's it's just fascinating it just keeps going with more and more and more information this this thing just keeps giving it does <laughs> it really does yeah. my goodness yeah yeah marquette yeah somebody just said uh john john edwards just said that uh yeah um marquette university is named after him yeah yep yeah, exactly so fascinating stuff. Wow, guys, I don't know. I don't know if you have more to share. We've gone well over two hours, two hours and almost 20 minutes now. Um, and I know it's getting late for Corian. Um, um, if you had more, we could keep going, but it's up to you guys. I mean, that's, this has been a fascinating afternoon. I mean, everybody just all the chat that's been going by is just talking about how much people are going to watch it a second time because there's so much to absorb here. Um, it's just been a fascinating afternoon. Well, we enjoyed it very much. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I got, yeah. So, um, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up now, but thank you so much guys. Uh, Corian and Christopher, we'd love to have you come back again on the show. Um, we really hope that you get to, um, let's, I'm just going to say share this, uh, outside of this area and maybe, uh, some of the new research that you're doing, you get to share it. Um, we'll hopefully see you on TV one day. <laughs> we'll leave it at that, but uh, fascinating stuff. And, and I can't thank you enough for coming here and sharing this with us today. And then James McQuiston calling in and we got Cord over there. Like I said, if we could get all of you with Alessandra, if we could get all of you in one room together, what a fascinating day that would be, man. Thank you so much guys. No, no problem at all. Uh, thank you for having us. There's one more lady I'd like to acknowledge, which okay. is uh, Charlie Rizno. Mm -hmm. uh, who's helped us uh, with some of our research and uh, again you know big shout out uh, to all uh, the fantastic people out there that do research uh, in the same or different mm -hmm. or uh, you know neighbor domains uh, Court Lindahl, uh, uh, James, Aaron, Jake Roberts, Chris Dona uh, you know we're all friends we all get along and we're all uh, you know uh, uh, sharing information uh, to get a better understanding uh, of what of what went down here so uh, uh, and, and thank you so much for having us, Jeff Alessandra. It's, it's really a pleasure. And we yeah. and we can thank really you. on go on forever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we will if you don't stop us. Yeah. Well, I, that's the thing. I really don't want to, but uh, you know, I, I try to keep these to two hours because it's hard for everybody. I, I just yeah. want to point out there's Please. a painting behind Christopher that looks suspiciously like the Shepherds of Arcadia. I have to have it's it the original. To Louvre by tomorrow. It's so the original. <laughs> Um, yeah, the Louvre will reopen in a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow, what did I tell you about? It's been absolutely fascinating. And thank you again, uh, Alessandra, for for being my my guest host uh, today. Fun. My co-host. It's been you you and so many people said, well, you just graduated to the to the highest ranks of uh, everything. With your questions, were great, and that's and folks, that's why I asked her to be here because. 
you know, I, I provide a platform and I do a little bit of research, but I don't have anywhere near what these folks here have. And that's why I asked Alessandra to be here today, um, because I knew that she would be an important part of this discussion and provide some information and good questions. And you did not disappoint at all. Thank you so much. And thank you again, Chris and Corey. And, and don't forget, folks, we do have Jay, uh, uh, Jake Roberts coming on. Uh, he's going to be on the show, too. He's coming up on the 22nd of May. Um, so that's going to be another interesting afternoon and, and you got to really, you got, you, it, he's one of the gentlemen like you guys, you can't look away for a moment because if you do, you're going to miss some important stuff. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you can't, you can't go, Oh, I got to take this call real quick. Cause if you did, you just lost a whole bunch of stuff right there from that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. anyway, thank you guys so much. And, and ladies, uh, for being here with us today. And it's been fascinating. And thank you members for coming by and joining us today. Um, and again, don't forget to, if you're out there on the um, Twitch side, just uh, click that follow button and you can get uh, notified right away when we have new content coming out. And uh, I'm going to do whatever I can to do, uh, have to do to get Chris and Corey and what we like to call CNC to come back on the show again in, in the future and keep on going with this story. So thank you guys so much. Thank you all folks. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks Bye everybody. Now.